Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I talk to filmmakers Stephen Bognar and Julia Reichert. Their latest film, American Factory, is an Oscar nominee for Best Documentary. It's set in their hometown of Dayton, Ohio, at a former GM auto plant that closed down several years ago. In American Factory, we witness new hope arrive when the Chinese glass company Fuyao reopens the plant and creates new employment. Stephen and Julia filmed over two years as the first wave of hope turns complicated. We watch a culture clash play out between the Chinese management and the American workers. The whole premise is head-spinning for Americans. We're more accustomed to our companies going to China for cheap labor. So what does it mean when China comes to the U.S. to impose its systems here? Stephen and Julia worked with Chinese collaborators that enabled them to get close to characters on all sides of the story. We watch workplace tensions grow over an effort to unionize the plant. We talk a lot in this interview about getting access. I mean, it's one thing to get access, and it's another thing to gain trust. Julia came from a working-class family in New Jersey. Coming of age in the 1960s, she was galvanized by the women's liberation movement. She went to college in Ohio, where she made her first documentary in 1971 called Growing Up Female. That was followed by her films Union Maids and Seeing Red that explored hidden chapters of revolutionary politics. Stephen met Julia in Ohio as his film career was beginning in the 1990s. They became a couple but made films individually. Then they teamed up for an epic project called A Lion in the House, that followed the families of children with cancer as they undergo treatment over several years. It was released in 2006 and won a primetime Emmy. Their next film was a short called The Last Truck, Closing of a GM Plant, that was Oscar-nominated in 2009. It documents the closing of the very same plant that they returned to in American Factory. To get this project going, they had to spend months working on their own dime before they gained funding from participant media. The film premiered at the 2019 Sundance Film Festival, where it was acquired by Netflix in partnership with Barack and Michelle Obama's company, Higher Ground. I sat down with Stephen and Julia last August. Looming in the background were two events from the prior week that come up in our conversation. One is the passing of documentary pioneer D.A. Pennebaker. The other is a mass shooting in Dayton, Ohio, that occurred a few days earlier on a Saturday night outside a bar. The gunman killed nine people and wounded 17 in a mere 32 seconds before he was shot by a police officer. Our conversation took place at the School of Visual Arts in the MFA program for social documentary. I asked Julian Stephen how the Project of American Factory got started. It's good you brought up The Last Truck, because that is how it came about. Um, The Last Truck is filmed in our own hometown, Dayton, Ohio. We had made this earlier film, and when Fuyao came to town, that factory had been empty for like six, seven years. There was a ton of excitement when Fuyao arrived. And pretty quickly someone said, 
what's going to happen here is historic. They're going to bring a dead, huge factory back to life. And people started talking about, like, let's document it. And then someone in town said, well, there's these two filmmakers already there. Why don't we ask them? We were approached by the community helping the company come to town. And we said, yeah, it sounds good, but we will do it as a film if it's an independent film. If we own it, we have editorial control. We don't take any money from the company, but the company really would have to trust us and give us access. And that, it was like not a few weeks of discussion going back and forth, but pretty soon the chairman, who's the real decision maker there, said, let's, let's do it. This is the Chinese billionaire who owns uh, Fuyao. Cha- yes, Chairman Chao DeWang, who started the company in the 1980s in China and is now like a, a worldwide multi-billionaire global entrepreneur. So did you have to have a meeting with him to, uh, fin- to finalize the deal? We didn't actually have a meeting with him. We had a meeting with like the vice president. I think we had a meeting with Rebecca, the main lawyer. Right. But no, we met him pretty early on. I mean, the plant was still way being built when we first, remember when we first yeah. filmed him, it was in like a, just a little room and every, there was construction all around. We started filming yeah. February or March of 2015 and then he first came to town, I think in May of 2015 June, and we did yeah. our first sit down interview with him then, the first of like something like seven or eight sit down interviews and we filmed him, you know, walking through the fa- factory. There's a couple scenes, there's a scene in the film where Rebecca's on a bullhorn, and the chairman's talking to like a sort of a semicircle of American workers, and he's saying like we're going to do this kind of kind of a rallying speech. Like that was one of his first days in the plant when he first came, and that's one of the first times we filmed with him, for example. So um, you know, it's it's we started to get to know him and this world early on, but we we didn't know what the story was or where it was going. We did know. I will say we did know because of the last truck. We knew the stakes for um, the American blue-collar workers. We knew the stakes because we knew what it had meant to them because of the last truck. We knew what it meant to have a secure job with respect, with good benefits, where you can plan your future, where you can have a vacation, where you could go to college. Um, and we knew what it was like to lose that job and have your the, just the floor fall out from under you and be devastated and we just feel beaten down for years. People, I mean, some people, like, we, we followed. You know, this brought us back to our community in a big way. And we started, we kept following people in different ways with radio and photography and so forth. People living in their cars, people earning $8 an hour with no benefits at all. I mean, I'm talking about families, you know. Um, people losing so, their homes. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like, really, it was frightening what went on. So when the plant reopened, that sense of hope and optimism and that we're going to pull together and we're going to do this. It's a startup. The wages are not good. The job is hard, but we're going we're gonna to do it. And we're going to learn about the Chinese folks. We're going to learn their culture. You know, that was such a sense of optimism that, um, that started out. And I think we understood that more, and our hearts were really with the blue-collar workers because we understand the st- understood the stakes. We came to understand better, wouldn't you say, the stakes for the Chinese workers who came, you know, who had mostly been working at Fuyao for a long time. They were long-term experienced workers, mostly. And how many uh, came over? About to- 300. At any one time, although it came, people came over in waves, sometimes you'd see 10 or 12 people coming over at once. 
And let's not forget, they, they came from a small city in China, got on a plane knowing no English, knowing nothing about America than like Reservoir Dogs and Breaking Bad on the TV, right? That's what they knew. Or, you know, that kind of thing. And then they get off the airplane in Dayton, Ohio. Not a big city like New York where you'd find lots of Chinese restaurants and Chinese culture and Chinese people, but Dayton, Ohio. Uh, and they have to make a life here. Uh, what, was, what were the stakes for them? Like, they were separate from their families for a year, two years. They had to make that plant build up, sing, make profit. They were going to sacrifice almost anything of their lives to make that plant work, to make that endeavor succeed. And the chairman, they were very loyal to the chairman because he had given them a good job for like 10, 20 years. Someone like Wang had worked there. He was very loyal he, to, to the company. He may have never even met the chairman at all, but uh, he was very the, loyal. The loyalty we felt between someone like the factory furnace uh, engineer Wong and the company reminded us a lot of like in the 50s in America when you might have someone who works for GM or Ford or General Electric, the fierce loyalty they felt to the company, and they felt that the company felt loyalty to them. Whatever, you know, you can call it like a social contract or something. And we really feel like that's broken now, that there's no loyalty between company and workers now, kind of almost anywhere in the U.S. But we really felt that in, in China with companies like Fuyao. The, the stakes were high. The stakes were also high. It's funny we never talk about it this way, but the stakes were also high for the management, the, 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 the American management who were brought in to, like, bring back as many as 2,000 to 2,500 jobs to this devastated community and somehow make it work. It was very difficult. The cultural differences were really great in management style, in how they trained the workers to, for this, the, you know, the American workers for this whole new type of job. Huge, huge differences. Even them understanding our laws. They did not understand our laws and our way of treating the environment, treating workers, and so forth. So for management, that balancing act was really hard. For the chairman, it was really hard. And in many ways, this was a new territory for us as filmmakers. We've we've sort of picked a community and told a story from one point of view, the workers in the factory who are losing their jobs. In this film, we started realizing this is going to have multiple points of view, and we're going to try to craft something that immerses you and gives you empathy for people who maybe don't even agree with other people in the film for whom we also hope you'll have empathy, and that we're going to build this large kind of structure where you'll be upstairs on the Chinese side or downstairs on the American side or vice versa, and you'll care about multiple people, even though they don't know each other or maybe even they're getting on each other's nerves. And a lot of times, actually, it's, it was a little bit like a lion in the house in that way, where we talked to the, you know, the kids and their moms and dads, but we also had access to the doctors and their meetings, the nurses and their meetings. Differences, Some, they weren't necessarily adversarial uh, in uh, the way that unionized workers are to yeah. uh, uh, to the management. Uh, and, and what's so extraordinary about American Factory is its ability to tell the story from multiple perspectives and the candor that you capture, even candor from, you know, upper management to ought to be out of had some media training uh, or, you know, there's one moment where um, 
it's uh, you know upper middle manager is upset with uh, something that Senator Sherrod Brown has said at uh, at a rally. Uh, Sherrod Brown has made mention of uh, the union, which they were not expecting him to say at this factory rally. And uh, this manager says to someone else, you know, I'd like to take a scissors and cut his head off, uh, which you know, like we've all said things uh, that we don't literally mean uh, like that. And, and I think the film does a good job of making him seem human in that moment. Uh, but uh, it, like that was a moment that struck me as like, wow, I can't believe he said that in front of the camera. Well, we were always – that's the thing. We were always there. We were like the wallpaper. I mean there was one person It was – Audrey, Aubrey, Aubrey Keith, Aubrey Keith young, young cinematographer who that particular day we each had a character we were going to follow, right? Uh, I forget who I followed that day. Anyway, Aubrey, Aubrey carried, followed him and, you know, she was just there at his shoulder all the time and he just pretty much but, but, forgot about her. But by that point, she, I mean, first of all, we've been filming Dave for months and right. that day, Aubrey had been uh, following Dave probably for five, four, four hours before that moment happened. So the ca- like he's got, he's wearing a lavalier mic and he's on camera for four hours and, you know, it's just like at some point you just got to live your life and not be so self-conscious about the camera. Uh, so as time went on and uh, other tensions started to rise uh, in the factory, did you get pushback from any of the people you were following about uh, or questions about what story you're telling? Yeah, we sure did. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Na- naturally. Oh, yeah. I mean, as the union sort of battle flared – some people started wondering, are we company spies? Are we spy? You know, like we were trying to film union meetings and they, they they see us with management and they think, oh, well, are you informing management of what we're talking about? And then management wondered, are we like union spies? You know, so we, we learned, um, we had to learn to not affect the course of events. Documentarians should not change what happens. I mean, unless it's like a personal doc, perhaps like 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 Best Boy, perhaps classic doc from the set from the seventies. But we didn't want to, we did not want to impact what was happening, and so we had to really learn to be careful to not sort of reveal things we knew. We knew a lot of stuff that like the management didn't know about workers, and workers the work the people on the floor did not know about management. I would say we we feel like we're like in the crow's nest. You know, where you can see the ocean all around, you can see what everybody's doing, but you don't, we, we didn't speak to people about it. Yeah, we knew a lot of stuff. I always say it's one, but somehow we navigated that. I mean, it's one thing to get access, and it's another thing to gain trust. Just getting access wouldn't get us that close to people. And I think it had to do with that we were truly curious about everybody's what all the difficulties everybody faced. This was a huge endeavor. It was a never-before-done thing, certainly in Dayton, Ohio, and pretty much even in the U.S. probably, creating something like that. Um, And I think it was just that empathy we actually had. It wasn't fake, you know. And after a while, even people who maybe in other parts of my life, I might have felt they're the enemy. I'm on the other side of the barricades from them. I did not feel that way after a while. I felt like they are really struggling to do the best they can do. There were no bad guys. I didn't feel there were any bad guys. And we we also told people, look, we will treat you fairly. In the editing, we will not demonize you. And we worked hard in the editing to not have, like, simple black and white 
you're bad, you're good. It's not that the chairman, you know, you could say, oh, he's a ruthless capitalist who wants profits. But he's also, he brought back 2,000 jobs where people needed it. And he has self-reflection himself. He wonders, am I, am I harming the environment? Am I doing the right thing? Am I more contributing or not? He's, he's got this ruminative side to him that's not black or white. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, in a little bit, I want to ask you about the experience of sharing the film with people. But let me ask you a couple other yeah. questions. As storytellers in Ohio, I wonder what you think other media might miss about Ohio or telling stories about Ohio. That's a great question. I, th- I think sometimes people miss the the creative lives that, let's say, working people, working class people have outside of the factory. I think people would come to come to tend to come to Ohio and see people in some kind of crisis. But that's not their whole life. There's a whole life beyond the the, the hard spot they're in. Everybody in our film, and I wish we could have shown more. You see it more in The Last Truck, where we spent a little more time with that. But people are musicians. People are crafters. Painters. People painters. People make stuff. Um, people all have – people are way gardeners and love it, like Mark, you know. Um so I think people sometimes miss that, people sort of pigeonhole. I mean, amongst your friends, we all know the people close to us. We know there's multiple parts of us, but I don't think you well, capture that. You know, and most media, let's face it, comes out of New York, L.A., you know, and maybe they don't a day have— day or a week at most. And, yeah, and maybe didn't come from that kind of background or don't have parents or grandparents who live there. I don't know. And the nuance of, of different people's—like, uh, it's easy to look at someone and say, pigeonhole them and say, oh, they're, that's the, the gun-toting, Harley-Davidson riding, Trump-supporting, uh, you know, blue-collar white guy, right? But that blue-collar white guy also, you know, he's his best friend is an African-American man— in the factory, and uh, they they're very tight, and he's you know he, he 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 yeah he might have voted for Trump, but he also might have voted for Obama, you know he he he's got complexity to him. And he, he raises he has horses. He lives on a farm, and his he really befriended Wong. I mean, were you talking about? Yeah, Rob and he loves he, he really yeah. gives his heart over to this these these Chinese guys who he sees working their hearts out. It's there's more new. I, I you know it's true for anything. You have to spend time with people to to feel the layers and the the the, the ridges and the the grain of their lives. Well, p- part of that grain that comes through in the film is uh, humor. Um, you know, th- there there are aspects of the story that are very serious, even tragic, but you are alert throughout to moments of humor. I think of a scene where. Uh, workers have taken pains to put up uh, uh, signage like letter by letter um, above a factory door. And when it's all done, they realize there's a grammatical mistake to, uh, to it. And, and uh, you know, and it, it comes across in the film not as like a joke on them. Oh, look, they made this grammatical mistake. It's, uh, you know, more a kind of human thing that you know, we all put work into something, and then it's you know, through our own human foibles, it doesn't always come out the way we expect. We never wanted to cross a line into mean humor, but we felt like both the Americans and the Chinese, there's fair game for a little gentle poking of fun. 
humor loosens us up, right? We watch movies. We've all seen many earnest documentaries that have no humor and no release, that emotional, whatever, physical release. And we just feel like if there's the possibility of humor and it's not unfair, why not? Documentaries should have more humor. You know, there's another thing. There's no. I'm proud of the fact that, to me, there's no gotcha moments in the movie. There's no moments when a person said something you shouldn't have said and we just kind of gotcha. All the things that are said, even those that are difficult to hear, were said again and again and again. I think this, you know, you all, we always say as documentarians that we're trying to talk about the human condition, right, which I truly deeply believe in. You're trying to talk about what it means to be human in a particular time in a particular place. And I actually think Lion and this film really achieve that. We really kind of go, cut through the story and the immediate crisis to like, what does it mean to be human when you're a doctor in a cancer ward or when you're a manager in a really tough situation or you're a worker in a real, or you're an owner? What does it mean to be human? And in this world of globalization, you know, where cultures are definitely coming together, where workers' wages are being pushed down, um, what does it mean to all of us that to be a worker what is that human condition to be a factory worker right now? I'm not saying this very well, but I think no, I've are. never thought about this. We really are trying to achieve an answer to that question in this time and this place. And through observational cinema. Yeah, you know, right. we're, we're to what we do. Right. We're talking to you, Tom, a couple of days after D.A. Pennebaker died. And we've been talking about his legacy and what his films mean to us. And it's just that the power of that immersive cinema of just how much you can get from, not from words on a screen, not from narration, not from exposition, but just the visual observation of people interacting, the, the, the sort of shaggy dog poetry of everyday life. It's like, we love that. And I feel like uh, Penny and, and Penny and Chris's films, they, they found those veins again and again. And uh, that's something we're always striving for. Penny was like, we we loved him. I mean, when we listened to him, he's a great raconteur, as I'm sure you know, and would ramble all over the place. But he was he approached. He was 94, but he always approached life and talking and shooting as like a little boy. It's like he just, always said that he felt like the youngest person in the room. Okay, I didn't know and that. Always but, had that kind of outlook too. Yeah, like he was very like he said, I'm like a cat. You know, I get in there and I just look around and see what's interesting. And I, you, you try to bring that, even to these serious situations, that sense of like youthful innocence and just like what's really just going on here. And we got that, we all got that from Penny. A big portion of the story is a Chinese story. And I know that you worked with uh, Chinese crew members, uh, including some former students of mine uh, from here at the School of Visual Arts, uh, where we're talking. Um, can you talk about the, you know, the importance of having you know, Chinese uh, field producers as part of the it team. It was utterly, utterly crucial to making that film happen. You know, they came out, and first of all, immediately the Chinese workers who really couldn't talk to us and did not want to be on camera immediately started talking to them, right? And were comfortable being on camera. Yeah. Lulu Men, uh, Xian Liu, Danny Wang, they were the first three who came out. And, and then... Pretty soon, we met uh, two, the two women who became our co-producers, Yichen Zhang and Mijia Li. We met Mijia through uh, the folks who made Last Train Home, 
uh, Ice Steel Films up in, in Montreal. And then Ichen approached us at IDFA. We had just done this pitch for the, we were trying to raise money at that point. We did a pitch at IDFA, and, and Ichen heard the pitch and came up to us and said, Look, I'm a, I'm a producer in China, from China. I, I want to work with you. I live right, in Toronto yeah. now, and I want to work on this film. And we're like, well, okay, let's let's sit down and talk. But within forty five minutes, we had she was we had plans for her to come to Ohio. And and once Mija and Chen were fully on board, one or both of them were in Ohio every month, and that was crucial to the film expanding and its consciousness expanding. Well, and it's partly it was partly that they could talk to the Chinese workers, and particularly Chen and Mija really established relationships. Like we already knew Wang. But we couldn't really talk with him. We already knew Leon, but his English was still marginal. But they really established relationships, going to dinner at their house. But the other, so they did that. But I feel like the other thing, especially uh, Yichen did, is educate us, talk to us long into the night about because they were born and raised in China. They had only recently come to the U.S. Yichen's, I mean, Mijia still lives in China. You know, so that we could say, well. We could ask them, like, what is really, what is this uh, New Year's celebration thing all about? And what about the style of eating? And what about the way women are treated in China? And did, when did you st- have access to books? And what's the education system like? These workers, these blue-collar workers, did they go to college? Did they go to high school? The management people, you know, we didn't understand China. They, they of course, are Chinese and lived there. Yeah. So they educate. I feel like that was a huge contribution. Chen told us books to read, which I would then read. So so helpful to us. The process of unionization is so important. in This film, when when the factory opens, it's uh, uh, an ununionized uh, factory, and then that becomes a real issue. Uh, we also see the contrast in expectations between American workers who. Uh, come from union backgrounds when it used to be a GM plant compared to the Chinese workers who have never had that um, system before. I wonder what the experience of making this film and and then even taking it out and showing it around has taught you about the state of unions in America. Well, making the film certainly showed us that, you know, the with the globalization that's happening, the global economy uh, putting more pressure on everybody to be productive, to work harder, and yet make less, with the efforts to stop unions happening through the use of these consulting companies, like the one you'll see in the film. You see in the film, working people like are in a harder spot than they've been uh, in in generations, especially in the U.S. You know. We had a middle class 30, 40, 50 years ago, and it was largely due to good jobs that, with good wages that were mostly fought for by unions, and a lot of that's gone. So we see, you know, it's interesting. In China, there's a growing labor movement. It's hard to read about, but there have been strikes throughout many factories in China, and wages have gone up in China, uh, we've heard repeatedly, because of this, but you don't, you, you know, it's hard for us to hear about that. In the U.S., there's been a concerted effort to undermine union membership, these these consulting companies, and a sort of a major multi-year campaign to say unions, we don't need them anymore. Yeah, they had they had they served a purpose a hundred years ago, but now we don't need them, and that's led to a lot of loss of agency for working people. 
Uh, I wanted to just also add, Tom, that something we were we filmed, which I don't think has ever been filmed, and it was really revelatory to us, is the influence of these union avoidance companies. This one was called Labor Relations Institute. It's a big one, but there's hundreds of them. Companies who are highly skilled, highly trained, trained in our universities and our law schools to fight unions, to avoid unions. And it's one thing to have a point of view, you don't want a union, okay? And you talk to workers about why you don't want a union. It's another thing to fire workers and discipline workers because they are clearly pro-union. It's another thing to intimidate and and coerce people, which they do. Um, it's not just in Chinese factories, by the way. It's almost any American uh, factory or big workplace would try to hire a company to avoid unions. These folks have a really clear playbook. It hasn't changed that much since the 70s. And to, to my mind, in that factory, it was not a fair election. It was not a fair election. In other words, we all believe in fair elections. We all believe you shouldn't be coerced. You shouldn't be. But lots of people were targeted and then fired for their union activity. We found out we found it out more later after the film was finished being shot, but you see enough of it uh, in the film. Like Jill was definitely targeted, and later actually the company, she filed an unfair labor practice, and the company settled with her. But the ironies abound because then we went to China, and everyone's in a union. And these, the, the, you know, this communist country is, are, are basically the best capitalists in the world at the moment. And why are the fiercest union fighters in the, in the United States, the, you know, folks who are some of them who are members of the Communist Party? It's a really fascinating set of, of like contradictions and complexities. But it's also the world we live in now. Yeah. That's and, what we're trying to present I mean, to you. We I hope think, the right? film will leave people grappling with the like: is this is this it? Is this the future? Uh, we're all under more pressure. We're all, you know, are we all going to be working nine to nine, six days a week? Is is this the fate of working people? Is this sustainable? We want to. Sp- we hope this film sparks these con- kind of conversations about the sustainability of this. What direction is it going? Are American workers going to be working like they do in China, or or will the Chinese workforce say, you know what? I don't like working. I don't like working six days a week, twelve hours a day. That actually, let's let's change this. What's going to happen? We we want we want to spark that. Uh, so uh, let me ask you about the experience of sharing the film with the people who are in it. Well, we were nervous doing that, to say the least. You mean uh, with the management? Well, yeah, we took it. Well, we took it. So. Every you know the main people who are have speaking roles in the film uh, and who still work there, uh, they've all seen the film. Whether they're like you know Bobby or um, Wong or Timmy, um, Jill, t- yeah. yeah, and and that includes the management. We we showed the film to the senior leadership at in Ohio, uh, the president Jeff Liu and uh, some of the top folks back in November, and then again right before Sundance. Uh, when when it was locked and, and done, uh, and they were very gracious about it. They they you know they saw that there were things uh, that they didn't like or that made them uncomfortable. But they also said like we learned a lot from watching this film, and it, and it was a rough few years. But we we want our they actually said to us we want our senior leadership to see this film, 
And then the chairman saw it uh, not that long ago, like a month or six weeks ago. And he also, again, he didn't like love everything in the film, but I think he he, he said- You weren't it. in the room when he was watching. No, I was. I was sitting next to him. And uh, we, we, we subtitled a version of the film so he could read it because then uh, he doesn't have to have someone kind of trying to keep up with all the English. Uh, but he was very generous and gracious about it as well, and so far they've been really good about it. Uh, that that they you know they see it as a, a record of a hard few years. Did everything go well? Were they you know did they make any mistakes? You know they they grapple with all that. But um, yeah, so far it's been it's been good. And we're having on just in two two weeks from yesterday. August 19th, we're having, Netflix is doing, which I think is really cool, the sort of big premiere in Dayton. Mm-hmm. They said usually they were like, oh, really? We're going to do it in Dayton? Usually they do it in New York. A, a bigger media market, I guess is what they say, right? New York or L.A. or whatever. We said, no, we should do it in Dayton. And so we are. And there's going to be a lot of Fuya workers, past and present there. So that'll be really Chinese interesting. Chinese and American. Yeah, Chinese and American. And, of yeah. course, community members. And yeah. um well, and and Dayton, as you know from the news, is is reeling from a mass shooting that we just had, and um, we hope the premiere will be a, a a moment of coming together to you know mm-hmm. to just be together downtown Dayton and a few blocks from that. Uh, it's weird to be in New York right now because like uh, all our friends and family are dealing with this uh, this tragedy, it, and it's just like a small town there. It's like like our immediate friends and family were not hurt or injured but like we know people who who were and um uh yeah so it's tough to be away from home right now as this film goes up on netflix and reaches millions of people around the world like is there something that you're kind of looking forward to or you know hoping well i'm very much hoping that people will notice the lack of voice that workers have whether they're in China or America, and then by extension anywhere around the world. When I say workers, I mean working people, which is most of us, have actually very little voice in what happens at our workplace. And we should have more voice. We should have more of a a voice at the table. And there's actually repression of that voice that goes on. So I'm hoping that whether it's worker activists or the union movement um, can take the film and use it to help people become more aware of that and maybe make some change, whether it's through who you elect or what you do at your workplace, that you feel more courage, you realize. So I hope, yeah, that's that's something that I personally, as a person who comes out of a working class background and has made films about unions and working people, I personally really hope that makes help, it helps make some change. I hope the film helps depolarize conversations. It's so hard these days to talk about any kind of hot button issue and not go to the barricades, you know, and and be concerned that, you know, Uncle Bill or Aunt Sue will just freak out uh, because they don't agree with you. And uh, we've tried to make a nuanced film, a film that like thoughtfully raises questions about the future of working people and labor and work. And we hope that the film I hope the film just um, creates a space where people can can really have complex, thoughtful conversations with people they don't agree with. That you realize that 
even people who you don't agree with are on the other side of the barricades are human beings with real lives and reasons they do what they do. I think you see that in our film, right? You know, there, it is a very, very divided and polarized country we live in right now. And hopefully this will be a little antidote to that. I want to thank Stephen Bognar and Julia Reichert for speaking with me. Their film American Factory is now playing on Netflix and is Oscar-nominated in the category of Best Documentary Feature. If you're in New York City, I invite you to attend the Pure Nonfiction screening series at IFC Center. Every Tuesday night, we show a documentary followed by a conversation with the filmmakers. The winter season starts on February 11th with Barbara Koppel's new film, Desert One. For more information, go to ifccenter.com. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Anahausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.